Wow. <laughs> Spirit of the Lord is here. So I feel like I've already been to church. I have to pull myself together. You know, the Lord just really was kind of really enforcing in my heart that that this service would be one of the most important services of 2020. I didn't really know what he meant, but I think I do now. That it's going to have to be all about him. It's all about him. And if anything else gets in the way, it's going to lessen what God wants to do. And that means our agendas. And that means our kingdoms are going to have to come crashing down so his kingdom can be established on the earth. You know, I think about that verse, and it's been quoted a lot. Uh, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, repent, seek my face, I'll heal their land. But I think where we get in the way is we have a picture of what that looks like in our mind already. So we're praying to an end of a picture that's already in our mind. And I think that when we even drop the picture of what we think Jesus ought to do, and when we drop that picture and we just really humble ourselves in the place of saying, Jesus, I don't even know what it looks like, what I'm praying for, but you do. And so, God, would you bring that reality about? I think when we put aside our agenda and our pictures and our traditions and our ways and our things that we think ought to be one way or the other when we put that aside and then we pray from just this empty place of just like God whatever you want to do God like I'm I'm for you I'm with it and we put aside everything of what we know because I can't have a picture of something unless I've seen something in the past that I'm appealing to so sometimes when God wants to do something new in my heart I've got to let go of that thing from the past no matter how valuable it was in order to step into the thing that God has for me in the future uh, it's like this old story I used to hear where this, uh, where, where God had like all these, this, per, this pearls, these like precious pearls. And he would ask his daughter for like this toy necklace and he had pearls in his hand. He was wanting to give her and, and, and she wouldn't give it up because what she had, she thought she couldn't part with. And I feel like there's times where we feel like we don't want to part with what we got God because it's got us this far. And to step out into something new or to step out into something unknown would be really hard to do because uh, this has gotten me here. And so I'm having trouble trusting you and taking that next step into the thing, God, that you would have me to step into. But I've found that everything I let go of for God, he always gives me something more valuable and more precious. And then I look back with hindsight and say, why did I think that was so great? Because that's what the Lord does, is he's always trying to bring us into greater places with him. And it's always going to be a place of greater sacrifice that he calls us to. But anything that we give up, it turns, come to find out it's never a sacrifice. It ends up just being uh, something better than what God uh, had originally given us in the first place. And so 2020, wow, 2020 feels like a, a pressure cooker. 
Somebody said, if 2020 was a can of soda, it would be uh, Hellman's mayonnaise. And I think myself and a lot of pastors are chugging the soda saying, hey, it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> the best is yet to come. <laughs> We're trying to make the most of it. But you know what? I have grown in 2020. Oh, my gosh. I have been stretched in ways I never thought possible. I've been... Just, just man, and the Lord has just met me in such awesome, intimate times and moments that it's kind of like 2020, thank you a little bit. Because I didn't know what was down in me. You don't know what's down in you until you get squeezed. <laughs> you don't know what's in you until you get squeezed. And there's times I've been squeezed, and I didn't like what I saw. But it gave me an opportunity to put more faith in Jesus and less faith in me and begin to work through some things that I needed to work through. Oh, man. Pressured times. Pressured without, pressured within. And what happens when we're in times of crisis and pressure is we look for answers because we want to interpret the pain and give it meaning. Because if pain has meaning, I can live with it. But what I've found is not all pain has meaning. Sometimes there's an area of mystery that I'll never know. And in those moments of, of pain, in those moments of, of pressure, I find that I have two options in my life is that number one, I can, I can press into God and let that pain and let that hurt really press me into Jesus and his kingdom and just try to become more like him. Or I can find that it will take me another way to where I will not deal with the pain. I won't talk about the pain. I won't look at the pain. I'll stick my head in the sand and just try to find a way to be happy. And that's what we're seeing throughout the landscape is that people are searching for happiness, but they're not pressing into Jesus. And I want to tell you, without Jesus, there can be no happiness. In the year 2000, there was 50 books released with the title Happiness in it. In 2012, there was 23,000. That, my friend, is a crisis. People are looking for meaning. They're looking for something. And when I'm in these pressured times and I'm looking for answers, I've got to be careful because sometimes I'll settle on the wrong answer. And when I settle on the wrong answer, you know what I'll do? I'll look for other people that have the same answer so that I can create a crowd of people that have the same answer. And then I become tribal and cut off. Many times people say, man, I love that sermon, Pastor. Do you know what they're really saying? They're saying, you believe what I believe and you preached what I wanted you to preach. Rarely is it, you shifted my mindset and brought me into the place of a deeper reality, God. Many times it's, 
You finally preached what I was waiting for you to preach. See, when we've settled on our answers, we can't learn anything else new. And Jesus didn't come to answer your questions. He came to question your answers. That's why Jesus is all through the scriptures. When somebody asks him a question, what does he do? Ask another question. That there was all these groups of people that had settled on a worldview, that had settled on an answer. And they come to Jesus, not with questions, they come to Jesus with answers. Wanting Jesus to be on their side instead of them getting on Jesus' side. See, when we're in crisis, we find out sometimes we don't know who we are. And a crisis becomes a crisis of identity. And we find ourselves wondering, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And when that's not defined, we come up with secondary issues that we exalt and honor. And we call them Bible, but they're really just our traditions, our ways. And they end up becoming hindrances that keep us from deeper relationship with God. And when we create these secondary issues and we honor these secondary issues, what ends up happening is is that we end up uh, choosing and, and, and being judges in and of ourselves, because if we can have a thing that we can look at where we can say that's a Christian and that's not, we create a group of ins and we create a group of outs. And when we create a group of ins and we create a group of outs, we fall into pride because whenever we create that group, we're already assuming that we're in and we're already assuming a lot of people are out. And so we live in this reality of what makes me in, what makes me out. And then Jesus comes in in the middle of all what we think, and he disrupts everything. He disrupts everything. That Jesus' discipleship breaks in in the most pressured time in human history. That when Jesus came onto the scene, it was a time of tremendous pressure. With different competing worldviews on what was the right way forward for the people of God. There was one group called the Pharisees, and these were kind of middle class uh, kind of, and, and holiness was their heart cry. And so they so wanted to be holy that they created a fence around God's law. The original intent was well-meaning because they were trying to keep people from obeying the law. And if they didn't disobey this tradition, they wouldn't disobey the law. But what happened over time is, is the fence that they built around the law began to become a tradition and a man-made thing that they began to honor and considered it equal with the word of God itself. So suddenly, the fence they built around the wall didn't just keep people from breaking the law, it kept people from God. It created a system of ins 
and out. It created something uh, likened to in Luke chapter 18 when the Pharisee, uh, Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee came into the temple of God and he said, I thank God that I fast twice a week and I thank God that I tithe all that I have. He's thanking God for the righteousness worked in him, but he's not thanking God for the righteousness that is God. And that sometimes we can exalt our own holiness and the own righteousness that God has worked in us and not exalt the righteousness of God. So the tax collector, who is the guy who, who's like robbing his own people and like He's the IRS guy, right? Like nobody likes that guy. And, and so what he's doing is, is he's taxing the people, taking it to the Romans, but then taxing them a little bit more for, you know, to say, oh, I won't tell the Romans you didn't pay your taxes. So he's like got his little side hustle over there with this tax game he's got going on. And this guy walks into the temple and he can't even look up to heaven and he beats his chest and he says, oh God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy goes home justified. The other guy goes home in his sins. But the Pharisees were thanking God that he's not like everybody else. Instead of thanking God for who he is. You know what? They really weren't concerned that much with Roman rule as long as they were able to keep their traditions and be comfortable in their existence. There's another group within Jesus' day called the Sadducees. And they were a priestly lineage from the lineage of Zadok, the priest when King David was king. And oddly enough, they were secularists. They believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't believe in anything after that. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything. It was all earthly. So they, this group was the closest with the Roman Empire. They had mingled themselves into systems of power. They were Hellenistic and had a Greek way of living and a Greek education, but yet uh, ran the sacrifices in the temple, ran the temple living, and that's what they did. And so their big deal was, is everybody, leave the Romans alone. We've got our good little deal over here. Let's just live our little temple sacrifices. Let's do our little temple thing, and you guys just shut up. And there was another group called the Essenes. And they're not mentioned in the New Testament. We know about them from extra biblical literature. Probably the Dead Sea Scrolls found in Qumran in 1947 was this settlement. And so they withdrew from the world. They went into the mountains, into the wilderness and said, Oh, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. We don't want nothing to do with it. We're going to start our little settlement here. And we're going to sit back and watch and watch God fry it all. While we are the true children of light. So they backed out of culture. They saw themselves as the true, only true Israel. And called everybody else the children of darkness. And there was another competing worldview. Called the Zealots. 
They were a member of a Jewish sect noted for its uncompromising opposition to pagan Rome. They were the rebels or terrorists, some saw. And they would grow into groups and figure out ways they could hide into the shadows. They were called the Sakari, which is the word for a dagger. And they would come into a, a party where there was a, a big regalia and a, and a Roman festival or something. And they would find a Roman official and they would stab them and then escape. And cause chaos so that every time there was an event, there, you had to look over your shoulder because you couldn't really ever be at, at peace. Jesus had one of those in his group. Simon, the zealot. So in the middle of all these worldviews, in an overarching Roman Empire that had conquered the entire world, here's this pressure on the people of God of which way is the right way forward. And sometimes, you know what? I think at one time I've aligned with each one of those in a different way. Or sometimes I'm in a little bit like a Pharisee. Well, let me just enjoy my middle class existence, my little traditions of holiness, and I'll be okay. Sometimes I felt like a Sadducee. Just let me have my little temple rituals here. I'll be all right. Let me preach a sermon from time to time, you know, and do some good deeds in the community, and I'll be okay. There's times I felt like in a scene where I said, come on, let's pack up the kids, go in the mountains, and we'll just wait till Jesus comes back. Now, I had never want to stab nobody, so I ain't no zealot or anything like that. <laughs> I ain't got that far. But man, have I thought it before. No, not in that kind of way, but in the way of, we just need to turn this whole thing over and be rebellious. Can I be real with you? I mean, this is, so here I'm in the middle of just these thoughts, and I thought, wow, there's, and in Jesus' day, everybody's looking for a Messiah, a Savior, wondering if the next person that speaks great wonderful words is the next one that's going to be the one that's going to overthrow Rome and then bring in the glory days that Jesus was in the most pressured time in human history with all these competing views of what was and what wasn't and what's the right way forward See, when they came to Jesus, many times they weren't saying, Jesus, what do you think? They were saying, Jesus, which side are you on? Instead of the better thing to say would be, Jesus, am I on your side or not? Am I on your side? Jesus, am I on your side? 
See, because one answer is humble, and the other one already has the answers, and so it can't be humble. That's what I'm finding out is what the real issue is. You know, the issue isn't guidelines or no guidelines or this or that. Those are secondary issues. The real issue is what's the reality of my heart concerning Jesus? Is my heart longing for the king or am I trying to find ways to self-preserve my comfort and way of life? Is Jesus the longing of my soul or is he not? What am I building my life on? Is Jesus the treasure and the center of my life? Luke chapter 17 verse 20 says, Now at one point the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. When the kingdom of God was coming? So he answered. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. (laughs) Thanks Jesus. How are we going to know if I can't look? Well, if you look at something observed, that means it's got to be outside of you. And what Jesus is trying to do is actually on the inside of you. So Jesus has given us a better way forward here. He says, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst or in you, or I like one translation, it's in your grasp. <laughs> So in the age of the Spirit, Jesus is with us all the time. There's no place he's not. So Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, you're looking for it. You know where it is? It's in your grasp. It's right in front of you. Will you grab it? Will you apprehend it? It's in your reach. And we're looking everywhere for it. Where is it? Jesus is like, uh, hello? Huh. Here? Huh. It's in our grasp. See, when Jesus gets down to when he is establishing his kingdom, he rolls out what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And I hate that word because it's not a sermon, it's the Constitution. To the kingdom of God. So he sits in the middle. St. Augustine called it a sermon. It's not a sermon. It's not a message. It's not something that you would hear one time and then walk away. He's rolling out the law of God. And how Christians should live. And the ethics that we should live by. So in the middle of all these competing worldviews, In the middle of all this pressure. Jesus sits down. And rolls it out. Says, you want to see the kingdom of God and how someone in the kingdom of God looks? I'm going to make it very, very clear and plain for you. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 is where we'll start. Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. So a report about him spread throughout Syria. And the people brought him to all who suffered. 
brought to him all who suffered with various illnesses and afflictions. Those who had seizures, paralytics, and those possessed by demons. And he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan River. So this is, this is everybody. There's Jews, Gentiles. They're all there. Verse 1 in chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And he set down his disciples and they came to him. Then he began to teach them. By saying, notice this, that Jesus did all these healings and he created a crowd. And then when the crowd comes, Jesus sits. Uh, Jesus is not moved by a crowd. Do you remember when he fed the multitudes and they tried to make him king? And the Bible says that he ran away from them. (laughs) Jesus isn't submitting to our idea of what a king should be. He's king all by himself. Jesus doesn't care about the crowds. This is proof that Jesus was not an evangelical pastor. (laughs) Head count. Okay. See, Jesus seems rather ambivalent about crowds. Soren Kierkegaard said this, that the crowd is indeed untruth. Christ was crucified because he would have nothing to do with the crowd. Kierkegaard Arsel said that we like crowds because they abolish our conscience. Because in a crowd I can get away with anything and I'll lose my individuality. Seeing the crowd, he sits down. Now, now Jesus had healed and and his fame was spreading. He's doing all this cool stuff. But you know what I would find Jesus doing a lot of times in the Gospels is when he would heal somebody, you know what he would tell them? Don't tell a soul. I just did that. It's like, Jesus, isn't that the idea to get a big crowd so we can, you know, cover it in one shot? We can get as much out as possible. See, in the crowd, he sits down. Now, at this point, I would expect him to tell us how he healed the crowds. You know, Jesus never taught how to heal. He just said, go, do it. Like, I think we always want a formula or a model or something that we can replicate. Jesus, show me how to do it and I'll leave you alone. And that way I can do it myself without you. But Jesus doesn't tell us how to do things so that we won't get caught up in formulas and we'll get caught up in relationship. And we'll get caught up in being with him. And then the overflow of those things is we don't know what we're doing or how to do it, but we just know it happens because we're hooked up to the source. 
I would expect him here when he sits down to say, here's how I healed the crowd, so we're going to make news, draw a big crowd, and we'll all be famous. We'll all be blessed. But Jesus sits down and begins to say some other things. Now, the same words here, the same words used in Exodus chapter 19 when Moses says that he sat down, and, or, or in Deuteronomy 9, 9 rather, where, where Moses sits down and takes the place of a teacher and begins to tell the people and begins to go over them the law of God. Now, Matthew uses the words here, the mountain, and so Ma- Matthew never uses the article adjective um, or the definitive article, the, he normally just uses a mountain. He never specifies. But here specifically, he says the mountain. So what he's trying to do here is paint a picture of a new Moses. And Gentile and Jew alike all together at the foot of this mountain getting ready to hear about the new kingdom that's coming down and how people ought to live in it. In the middle of the Roman Empire and in the middle of every competing worldview. It's like Jesus is disrupting everything. He's disrupting and drawing us into new realities. So if you want the blessing, are you ready? Verse 3. Blessed or blessed? Sounds more spiritual to say blessed. Go on blessed, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. (sighs) Blessed are those who want more and are empty. And have tried everything in the world and found it to be wanting. These are candidates of the kingdom. The humble ones. The ones whose spirits are destitute and weak. They have a space in their heart for God to fill. I like what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And why do they take themselves lightly? Because they've seen the beauty of God. And how can you take yourself seriously when you've seen the beauty and majesty of God? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. These beatitudes seem more like wounds. It's like unless there's a wound, God can't heal it. It's like the life Jesus led, led to wounds. And if we look like him, we should have wounds and be familiar with wounds. Only a wound can get healed. You know what I found is that if seed gets sown on soil that's not been broken and busted up, the seed doesn't go in and germinate and produce fruit. That God is busting up the soil of our life. And we've got two paths here. We can get bitter and mad about it. Or we can say, God, it's tilled up. Sow your seed. Sow your seed. Humbleness and surrender. 
I love what Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 says, Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground for yourself, for it is time to seek the Lord. Until he comes and showers deliverance on you. Seeking God makes my attitude right so that when he shows up, I can receive the seed and the word and the instruction that he's going to send down to me. I've found in my life when I'm content in my life, I hardly ever hear God's voice. But I found that every time I sit down and say, okay, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to hear. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to act on. Do you know he speaks every time I do that? And he'll scare the devil out of you doing that too. <laughs> Literally, right? Like, but rarely do we want to press into that kind of honesty and openness because we've already determined in our mind our course and what's right. And we're scared Jesus is going to turn over the apple cart and wreck our life. So we go on with a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. And so we come up with our rules of ins and outs and say, I'm in. Look, I do this, 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 and this. And we never beat our chest and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Somebody once said they better inherit it because that's the only way they're going to get it. Kind of sounds like grace. Something inherited and given, not something earned. But the meek will inherit the earth. Now, meek doesn't mean passive or lacking in courage, it just means humbled and surrendered. Jesus was meek. Moses was meek. David was meek. These are mighty men. But they were humbled and surrendered into the hand of God. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. So it's, notice it's not those who are righteous or are full of righteousness. It's those who hunger and thirst. So it's kind of like saying, if you think you are righteous, then this isn't describing you. He says, those who hunger for righteousness. So if you're satisfied with your own righteousness, you're in the wrong religion. <laughs> you are blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. That's what the message translation says. I love that. You're blessed when you work up an appetite for God. Oh, man. He's the best food and drink and the best meal that you'll ever eat. Wow. I think old Eugene Peterson got it on that one. Come on now. Even the KJV folks got a shout on that one. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful, forgiving, compassionate. But for the measure you give is the measure you get. Do you see how this isn't answering any of the other questions that everybody was wanting to know there? That this takes us from the outer world of everything else and brings us into the inner world of what is the reality of our own hearts. Verse 8. 
And that's the place where Jesus is always trying to get us. He's always trying to get us into the intimate places of our heart. Of like, of like here's where it starts. And here's where I'm going to meet you. And here's where you're going to find me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. So it's kind of like the level that we show mercy will be the leather, level that we receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, these blessings have to do with the heart. And you know what I've found? You can never control the crowd. But you can control your heart. It's the one thing you can control in your life is your heart. So the Bible says, guard your heart. So the Bible says, don't lose heart. Well, where'd it go? Oh, there it is. It's the one thing we can control. It's our heart. The pure in heart. That all of these blessings have to do with the interior of a person. And you know what? That really doesn't make headline news. That'll hardly ever build a crowd. Because that's personal. It's like Jesus built a crowd and then said, why are you here? Where's your heart? And that's what I've found so many times is you can't find you, you can't find The reality of your heart in the crowd. And I think that's why Jesus said, go into the secret place. And when you pray, you need to pray there because that's the only place you're going to be able to hear what's really in your heart. See, I think sometimes God calls us to pray, not for us to hear him, but so that we can hear our own heart in our prayers and go, wow, that's not right. So I tell people, you should journal your prayers and go back and read them, and you're going to be like, man, I'm selfish. Would your prayers change you, or would they change the world? And you'll find, you'll, you'll find that reality is, is, is that, is that what, what am I praying? What's in my heart? Because we know what's in God's heart. So the purity of heart is one thing that leads us to God. Paul writes to Titus, to the one that is pure, everything is pure. In other words, the state of my heart determines where I can see God. If my heart's pure, I'll see God in a rock. I'll see God on a flower. That's what Jesus said. The rocks cry out. Hey, look at that lily. Consider the lily. I'm not coming up with pantheism here. I'll even see him on a cross. The ugliest place in human history. That I'll be able to see God. Wherever I'm at. When we were in youth ministry, we had some pretty, you know, troubled situations we were dealing with with some kids in our group. And there'd be times, and Justin's brother Charlie hated me for this, but there'd be times where we'd be dealing with an issue and I'd just be like, hey man, there's my notes, preach my sermon. 
And I would go counseling during the service. And I'd hear stories of people getting beat with extension cords and just the most tremendous ugliness of human life that you could say. But you know what? Every time I was in a meeting with a young person like that, you know they always had a cross necklace on? And they would tell all this stuff and just be so broken. And I would grab that necklace and I would say, you know, I don't know either. But I know he cares. It's like the pure in heart can just find God just about anywhere. In a prison. In a bad neighborhood. In the homeless. Maybe just in the least of these we could find God. When we're pure in heart. Peacemakers will be like God. There came a time where the Prince of Peace was no longer famous. But he was famous in heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So do you see what he's saying here to the crowd? Blessed are you when the crowd turns on you. And you're persecuted. Because you look enough like me to be persecuted like I was. (laughs) For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Some translations, I like how they put it. For the kingdom of heaven is of them. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is made up with these types, people. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account me wow blessed are you when you're misunderstood say man I'm blessed (laughs) praise God (laughs) (laughs) the blessed life come on Robert Morrison (laughs) blessed are you when you're misunderstood why because people can't see the heart only God can see that So people are judging you based upon something that's not the inward reality of your relationship with God. Blessed are you when you're not famous and the crowd doesn't like you. (laughs) For you are the kingdom of heaven. So seeing the crowd, Jesus sits down. I think he's saying, guys, don't play the crowd. Don't play to the crowd. Don't confuse the crowd for the kingdom. The kingdom's in your heart. Guys, don't seek signs and don't confuse signs with the kingdom. Kingdom's in your heart. Love people, cast out demons, heal people in my name, but don't seek signs. Seek the kingdom. Twice in Matthew, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seek signs. You know what? When I'm depressed, you know what I'll do? Seek a sign. Find a crowd. Try to find some fame and go back on something I did good way back when to get a little encouragement. (laughs) 
Rarely do I ever say, Jesus, just come in. Just meet me in what this is, the reality of my heart right now. I seek a sign. God, do you love me? Well, there's a heart-shaped cloud. Yeah! Oh, wait, that's not a heart. It's a pitchfork. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Stop. Okay. Wife's telling me to stop. <sighs> See, when I don't feel blessed, I go off running, seeking crowds and signs. Don't depend on the latest teaching or the best preaching. Seek the kingdom. When you seek the kingdom, seek the king. Look in your own heart and ask yourself, am I destitute for Jesus? Am I willing to mourn? Am I humble? Am I hungry for righteousness? Am I merciful? Am I pure in my desire? Do I seek peace? Will I suffer for righteousness? If not, confess it to Jesus. And look to the king. Because he'll meet you in that place. Jesus, seeing the crowd, sat down. (laughs) He sat down. There's a man playing Mozart in Great Britain at a concert hall. And he was after he finished playing, the crowd erupted. And everybody stood up for a standing ovation. Chanting, encore, encore, encore. And so he went into the back and wouldn't come back out. And the proprietor came and found him and said, Don't you realize that everybody's screaming encore and they're on their feet and the roof's about to explode off this place? Like, you've got to get out there and play the encore. He said, No, I'm, I'm not going back out there. He said, Why? Everybody's standing. He said, No, not everybody. There's a guy on the east end who's still in his seat and he's not moved. He said, well, that guy doesn't know music. The concert pianist said to him, yes, he does. He's my teacher. And if he doesn't stand, I'm not going out. And if he was the only one standing, I would go out. What is the audience that you're living for? Only one time when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God do we find him standing. Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches and gets stoned while Paul's holding the coat. And as he's getting stoned, it says that he looks up into heaven and he sees the heavens open and he sees the Son of Man standing. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That when Jesus stands, it wasn't a miracle, it wasn't a great sermon, it wasn't a healing service. It was a man just being 
unpunished and broken and bruised, but still had the eyes to see God right in the middle of it. That makes Jesus stand. And you know, that probably wasn't in the Roman Democrat Gazette. But the throne room of heaven were probably saying, yeah, go Stephen. He gets it. So the Bible says that, they re- that the hall of heaven rejoices over one sinner repenting. It's like they don't really care about the crowd. Oh, well, there's a- yeah, they got it. had a mentor said, Matt, you need to spend as much time planning the altar call out as you do your sermon. And I never do that. I always get to this point and don't know what to do. Especially in this season. Y'all are just going to get raw honesty from here on out, okay? I'm just, I'm just going to, you're not going to have to guess what's in my heart, okay? Like it's, we're just going to tell, I'm just going to tell you. But I'm okay with not knowing what to do because I could really care less. Because I want the king. I want the king to be standing. I want him to say, well done. I'm looking for the king. I'm looking for the king. I'm looking for the king. In my own little broken, pitiful, kind of poor, mediocre way, I'm looking for the king. And I'm trying to figure this thing out. Would you stand to your feet in this place? Thank you so much for your time. I honor you for worshiping with us today. It's just so honored that you'd be here with us. Whatever you feel like, Joy, just let's just turn this into a time of whatever you feel like God's dealing with you on. If you've got to go, I get it, whatever, but let's just turn this into a time of prayer and worship. You.